1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so you're basically getting two sermons in one day, free of admission. Thank you for joining us. We're going to jump right into 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our verses of interest this morning are 12 to 17. That is where we're going to camp. We're going to talk through and walk through these verses. They're unique in chapter 1 because, as you will see, Paul is going to share his testimony. Different from other ways he shared it, he's not going to actually regurgitate the experience he had on the road to Damascus, where Jesus himself spoke to him, humbled him, and would use that encounter to engage him for his work. He's going to reference his past, his history, in a very real way, in a very authentic way. But he's also going to talk about the impact of the gospel. Now, you must bring back to the forefront of your mind where we've been. Because the reason that Paul is writing Timothy in the first place is that he is charging young Timothy, the pastor of the fellowship in Ephesus, that's Turkey, to guard the gate of the church as a gatekeeper, be mindful of the people and the doctrine. The doctrine is teaching. Paul would tell them, doctrine determines belief. Belief determines how you behave. How you behave determines who you become in that order, which is why solid, sound teaching, biblical doctrine is so important for a healthy church. In order for a church to grow, in order for a church to mature, the word of God must be pure. It must be healthy. The doctrine or the teaching that comes forth from a platform or a pulpit must read the word of God, preach the word of God, teach the word of God, expound upon the word of God. We read the lines and we also, as God gives spiritual insight, we read between the lines. Our last installment in this Bible study series dealt with the law of God in relation to an unlawful world. A world that is lawless needs the law of God. Now, when I say the law of God, of course, the law of God is the Old Testament. The Psalms, the prophets, or as Jesus said, the law and the prophets. It's the Old Testament. If I was to condense it, I would tell you the law of God is the Ten Commandments. The law that God gave Moses for his people Israel are the Ten Commandments. The first three 
are Godward. The first three can be summarized by, there's no other God. No other God before the one true God. Commandment number four is about the Sabbath. The final six commandments are manward, how you treat your neighbor. And we know that is why Jesus consolidated it and said, hey, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus came and fulfilled to a T perfectly the law of God. And here's why that is important, because we can't fulfill the law of God. Which is why Paul was telling Timothy, there are those who are abusing the law of God, misusing the law of God, skewing the law of God. We live in a world that wants to remove the law of God from the public square. Without the law of God, there's no accountability. There's no moral relevance. Which is why we lead with the law of God. Why? Because it's a mirror. Of a mirror of my reflection that tells me I'm a sinner. And I'll go first. I've broken all 10 commandments. Did you know that? All 10. Lust in my heart, adultery. Anger in my heart, murder. I want what's not mine, coveting. Stealing from my neighbor, taking the Lord's name in vain, placing other things and gods on the altar of my life, which belongs to the one true God. I've broken it all. And your pastor is telling you as he goes first, I am a sinner and would not be here without the other side of the story. Are you ready for it? Because if the law of God reveals that I am unrighteous, then I'm thankful that the law of God has first incriminated me in order for the gospel of God to exonerate me. Legal language. Every one of us has been incriminated by the law of God. No excuses, no justification, no way out. The verdict is in, guilty as charged. And we stop there, we're humbled there. And we're not without hope there because there was an advocate who stepped in and fulfilled that law and laid down his life and died the death that I deserved. And based on the sacrifice of Jesus, here's the gospel. You are exonerated of your charges. That's Unbelievable, and yet the Bible's like, no, you can believe it. Would you believe it this morning? Would you understand what the gospel has accomplished in your life? The saving of the soul. You've gone from death to life. You've gone from darkness to light. Is that not enough to get excited about? Is that not enough? During praise through music. Notice I said praise through music. I want you to praise God when there's no music. But we have the honor and opportunity to come together on a weekly basis to praise our God through music. And I don't think the room should be so quiet in the midst of praising God for what the gospel has accomplished. At least this is what Paul gets at after discussing the law's purpose when used lawfully He says this, and I'll read all of our verses, and then we're going to make our way through one at a time. Verse 12 to 17. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14. 
And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Verse 16, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ may show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And then he breaks out in what we call doxology in the middle of the letter, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Interestingly, Paul's not even done his introduction. We'll get to that next Sunday, Lord willing. But for the time we've been allotted this morning, verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, mark that, because he counted me faithful, mark that, putting me into the ministry. Notice, if you will, the onus is on the Lord. Paul is first orienting our attention to the Lord. What has the Lord done? I thank him who has enabled me. This idea behind enablement, it's an unbelievable Greek word. It means in, infusion, strength. So we say encourage, in courage. This is an endowment of strength, an endowment of ability. Who has given us our abilities? It tells us Christ Jesus. He's endowed us. He has infused us with an ability. He's enabled us in one sentence. None of us are able unless he enables us. None of us in any sphere have the ability in and of ourselves to accomplish anything, especially for the Lord, unless he's the one that gives us the ability. And then Paul says, because he counted me faithful. Interestingly, this is seemingly one of the qualifications of ministry. Now, here's what's crazy. Most people would actually assume that the qualifications of ministry require eloquence. That's not what it says, though. Because he counted me as an eloquent speaker, because he counted me as an intellectual thinker. No, no. Because he counted me, what's it say? Say it again. Faithful. Faithful. So what's the qualification to be used by God? One, to be counted trustworthy is the word. Faithful is the word. Not eloquence, not intelligence, faithfulness. Not charisma, character. The Lord uses men and women of character. So it's the Lord who knows the motives of the heart, which is why I would say be careful, and I would caution anyone from assigning someone else motive, because only the Lord knows the motives of the heart. He moves from, I thank you for the ability you've given me. I thank you that you've counted me faithful. And then he says, for putting me or entrusting me with ministry. First Corinthians chapter four, verse two will tell us it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So as God finds us faithful, he then, like many of the parables that Jesus told, he entrusts us with more responsibility. Every parable, parable of the talents, parable of the minas, 
All of them dealt with what God has entrusted to an individual and what they did with what they were entrusted with determined whether or not they were blessed and whether or not it multiplied. Which is a lesson and a message in and of itself. What are we using that God has entrusted to us for either the world that needs to be used for the Lord? What are we abusing that God has entrusted to us that should be used for his kingdom, that we're using for our kingdom? See, these first two verses are monumental. Paul is saying, it is the Lord who enables, it is the Lord who estimates, and it is the Lord who entrusts, in that order. It's the Lord who estimates and knows the heart. And yes, according to John the Baptist in John chapter three, verse 27, it is only the Lord, it is only heaven that entrusts a man with anything. That's what John the Baptist said. John, Jesus is gaining a following. Are you not concerned? Your disciples are leaving you and going to him. And he said most wisely, a man can have nothing unless heaven itself has given it to him. And then he said that most amazing verse in John 3.30, here's my heart, that I would decrease so that the Christ can increase. Now, verses 12 and 13 They come together because there's a comma after verse 12 and a connecting word in although in verse 13. And it says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. Now, understand the sentence structure would have made more sense if he started with what he used to be. I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be a persecutor. I used to be an insolent man. And in light of all that, God has done this. It comes second in the original language Greek because Paul is making a statement. It's very firm and it's very strong. And he's saying, I know it looks like that I don't deserve to be where I'm at. And you are right in making that estimation because I will agree. I was once formally, and he uses the word blasphemer. This is one of the strongest derogatory terms or labels that could fall upon a Jew. Interestingly, Paul was causing Christians in the first century to blaspheme by denouncing their faith in Jesus. He was blind to the fact that he was actually the blasphemer who would not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. This strong word means he slandered God. Paul is willing to say, you know what? I was slanderous towards the most high God. How slanderous? So slanderous towards the most high God, I persecuted the people of God. That word persecutor there speaks of violence, wanting to cause violence to those that were innocent. That's what that word means. That's why Paul talks about dragging women and children from their homes. It wasn't a space or place that he was living in, in regret but it was a place and a space that was often brought to his memory to remind him of the grace that Jesus gave him and he deserved it not. You know what? When you're violent towards God's word, blasphemous, you will persecute the things of God and that's what makes you, according to what Paul called himself, an insolent man. Insolence, strong word. I am a violent man. It's almost like he's saying it of himself, even though the action affected other people. 
Well, that's always the natural result. Hate God, hate the people of God, you hate yourself. But he's saying all that to get to the main point. This is why I obtained mercy. Mercy. Because I did it ignorantly as opposed to doing it, look at me real quick, knowingly. Okay, there's a huge difference between the two. Doing something ignorantly certainly does not excuse you of the consequences, but there's a difference between doing it ignorantly, not knowing, and knowingly, knowingly doing what you're doing. Did you know all of the religious leaders in the political state of Rome, when they took Jesus, when Judas betrayed Jesus, when they hung him on a tree, it was on that tree where Jesus was saying of the actions of the people, get this, Father, forgive them for what? For they know not what they do. That certainly did not excuse everyone on that day, excuses us of nothing on our day. But I believe, like our judicial system offers, it's a mitigating factor. There are aggravating factors and there are mitigating factors. Paul is mentioning this as a mitigating factor. Anyone that rejects Jesus in ignorance still needs to accept him by way of repentance. See, verse 12 and 13 are comparisons of what the Lord will do regardless of what we've done. And here's where this gets extremely encouraging. You know, there are times when I'm going out on the ministry circuit and I have the honor to share my testimony, my story. I'm in the green room, as we call it, or I'm behind the curtain and I'm praying. I'm praying that the Lord would be glorified in the midst of this talk or this message, but I'm also struggling. I'm struggling with how I should say it, even though I've told it countless times. And the reason I struggle is because I'm human. And the last thing I wanna do is get up here and wear my heart on my sleeve and regurgitate what I did in my past which comes with a, a weight of guilt. So I say, Lord, what do I say to these people today? How do I say it? And very subtly in my spirit, in my conscience, I hear him say through his word, tell them what you did. Just get out there and tell them what you did. Don't hold anything back. All right, I'll tell them what I did. Then what I tell them, what do I say after that? And again, very still, very subtle, the impression of the spirit, then you tell them what I do. That's it. See how simple it has become for me. You go out there and you tell them what you did and then you end by telling them what I do. And that seems to be what Paul has done here in these two verses. He is telling the world what he did, and then he is ending by telling everyone else what Jesus has done. In other words, our past does not make us ineligible. In fact, with repentance, our past keeps us humble. Without repentance, our past can keep us hard. Without repentance, our past can keep us haughty. Without repentance and remorse, our past can keep us hopeless. Anybody stuck in their past? Without repentance, our past can keep us heavy. But notice, Paul is like, everything that I did, everything that I was, was not enough to disqualify me from the work that the Lord has for me. There are times where I get out and the very first statement I make to any audience 
It's shocking. I get out there and say, my name is Matthew Mayer. And if you were to Google search my name amongst some really good headlines that would be yielded, you'd find a terrible thing that I've done. I was responsible for an at-fault drunk driving fatality, which resulted in the death of a man named Hort Cap in 2009. And you could see the looks on people's faces. I've not even introduced anything else except for that. And I say, I understand that may shock you, but would it help you to know that a majority of this book that we call the Holy Bible was also authored and written by individuals who took life? Moses, David, Paul. Now, I certainly don't bring that up to say that is one of the qualifications to be used by God, but obviously, it's not even enough to disqualify you from being used by God. See, Paul, you know, one of the moments in reading this verse that struck me was the fact that Paul does not gloss over his past. No, Paul memorializes his past. Now, I don't think he knew he was auditioning for the Bible. Like, you're writing letters for the Bible, Paul. No, he was writing a letter to Timothy. And as God would have it inspired, it would eventually make its way into the Bible. Yet it's memorialized for all of us to read about Paul's history. And he's memorializing it to highlight the magnitude of God's mercy. He's not flaunting his failure. He's framing forgiveness. He's not wallowing in it. He's worshiping through it. You better believe there were people, antagonists, both inside the early church, inside the religious establishment, and of course, in the political establishment of Paul's day that were quick to remind him what he did and why he should not deserve the platform that he was on. You better believe it. Why can I make that statement? Because there's nothing new under the sun and human nature is the same through and through. And you better believe, just as people are quick to remind you what you did and want to keep you back from what God is doing in you, you better believe they were doing the same with Paul. And there are those who want to remind me of what I did. You know what it does? It causes me to remember what he did. Talking about the simple fact that no matter what you do or no matter what you don't do, God's plan is gonna run through. Write this down. His infallibility works through our fallibility. Okay, his perfect knowledge, he doesn't make any mistakes. It works through the fact that we do make mistakes. We don't have perfect knowledge. Let me change that word because I make up words all the time. His infallibility works through my fallibility, my ability to fall, my ability to fail. And the reason I hold on to that one truth more than any other is because of my history. Just yesterday that bled into to my today, based on a post I made on Facebook, I woke up to a thread that I couldn't believe it was that long. And it was based on a comment on my post that said this from another person. Remember when you got drunk and killed a guy? Yes. March 7, 2009, 2.51 a.m. in the morning. Milepost 18.7 on the Atlantic City Expressway. Yes, I remember. And I was blown away by the amount of people from this fellowship that went to my aid, began to defend me. The encouragements you dropped warmed my soul. 
Leon, I felt your love, Big Papa. Stephanie, Lisa, so many. And while I appreciate that, can I share my heart with you for a moment? You cannot offend a man who feels the weight of his own offense and who knows that God's grace is greater than all his sins. So while I'm used to that, it simply gives me the opportunity to point to the forgiveness of my Savior. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. With faith and love which are in the sphere of Christ. That's where they exist. That's where they are derived. That's where you find them. Faith and love, of course, here at this moment in the text, faith and love are striking contrasts to the unfaithfulness and unbelief and the hatred that was previously found in Paul's life. He's saying, I've got this faith and this love that are in Christ because of the grace that God gave me. And the term is exceedingly abundant, which means like waves constantly crashing on my life. I don't deserve it. This one verse took me on a journey. I wrote down the first statement. God's grace is exceedingly abundant. Translation, you cannot outsin the grace of God. Right, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Paul's like, does that mean that you should keep sinning so that you get more grace? Absolutely not. But what he's saying is God's grace weighs more than your greatest mistake and that is why I said in that video, you can't offend a man who feels the weight of his own offense and who knows that God's grace is greater than all of his sins. How do I articulate that God's grace is exceedingly abundant? Well, I wasn't with you last Sunday because as God allowed it and ordained it, I was at a church in Philadelphia where I had the honor for the first time in 14 years the first time where I would see one of my victim's daughters face to face. And not only did we see each other face to face, the pastor of that fellowship, Pastor Randy of Calvary Church in Wincote, had the spiritual wherewithal to invite me to take the stage with Somali. And for the first time in 14 years, we were able to talk about the forgiveness Forgiveness that she extended my way. Forgiveness that I sought and begged for her way. And the picture shows us how God's grace is exceedingly abundant. And do you know this? My brother John and his wife Mary, right here in the third row. My sister Jill and her husband Sean, both landmark families traveled to be there, 
to support and encourage and witness what God is able to do when he takes that which is awful, that which is terrible, and he brings forth beauty. That's Isaiah 61. After the service, which you can watch online, whether by YouTube, my Facebook page, I've posted it. My wife and I, Sarah, had the honor of taking a a picture, and I know the picture's blurry, but the meaning behind the picture is not. And I don't know if this is gonna hit you as, as hard as it hits me. That's Somali to my left. That's her son, and that's her son's girlfriend and their child, which makes the child my wife is holding the great-grandson of my victim. Don't let anyone tell you that God cannot redeem, that he isn't a God of reconciliation, that he isn't a God who weaves his masterful beauty through something that is ugly. I stand in awe of God's grace, which is exceedingly abundant, which led me to the second point. It's not just exceedingly abundant. God's grace is personally efficient. And I chose that word carefully. Efficient, effective, as Paul would write to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the what? The grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace of God that was working toward me, was with me, caused me to labor more abundantly than everyone else. Paul's like, I'm laboring, I'm doing the work that God has called me to, and yet it's not me, it's the grace of God that is working through me. Talk about humility. See, the grace of God does not give us an excuse not to do the work of God. The grace of God energizes us and motivates us to do more work for God. But I do the work of God not to get God's favor. I've already got God's favor in Jesus. I do the work of God because the greatest work that God did on the cross was for me. So to show my appreciation for the work of God, I wanna work for God. Does that make sense, church? Say amen. Amen. And thirdly, God's grace is exceedingly abundant. God's grace is personally efficient. And finally, God's grace perfectly sufficient, sufficient. The passage, again, written by Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, verse seven to 10. Paul's like, because of the exceeding abundance of revelations I've received, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to strike me, nag me, irritate me, lest I be exalted above measure So God allowed this thorn, whatever it was, it's ambiguous because I believe God wants all of us to be able to relate to whatever it is in your life that is an irritant. It could be an emotion that is constant. It could be a state of condition like depression or discouragement. It could be a circumstance. It could be a relationship. It could be whatever it is that is nagging. And you plead like Paul pled with the Lord three times, Lord, remove it. Lord, please don't you see me in the midst of it. And the Lord's answer to Paul's prayer was a no, a no to removal. No, this is by my approval. Not just no, I'm not going to remove it. Paul, I approve it. Why? 
because my grace is sufficient for you. For when you're weak, that's where I'm strong. And God is like, I will turn your thorn into a throne and my power will, will rest upon that area in your life. That's another part of the Bible where Paul breaks out into worship. He doesn't even get done. It's like, oh my goodness, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, in my persecutions, in my distresses, because when I am weak, then he is strong, right? All that, ready, contingent, hinged on verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What is the chief qualification of salvation? Anybody know? Bible quiz? Chief qualification of salvation. What, what makes you eligible for salvation? <laughs> That's it. Congratulations. That's what qualifies you to be saved. Recognize that you're a sinner. And that's why the man on the job application, you've all seen this question before. The question right there, he put his name. Question, have you ever been arrested? And of course, right under it, Y or N, yes or no, with a Y, W-H-Y, like tell us why if the answer is yes. Well, he put no, N, but he decided to answer the Y. And he wrote, because I never got caught. <laughs> now be honest, church, how many in this room have ever been arrested? Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, not that many. How many people never been arrested because you never got caught? Raise your hand. Okay? And it's funny because somebody didn't raise their hand to either question. And I want to tell you, you're in a camp all by yourself. Like, Jesus isn't even in that camp because even Jesus was arrested. How do you like that? See, Jesus said in Mark chapter two, verse 17, and I'll paraphrase, those who do not admit they're sick do not need a physician. Jesus said, I came, I came to minister to the sick, spiritually lost. Those are the ones that are eligible for a physician. Anyone that says, you know what? I'm, I'm good. My righteousness is good. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. Lord's like, I, I can't save you. I didn't come to save you because you don't need to be saved, apparently. Watch the progression of Paul, the maturity. In 55 AD, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he writes this. I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. All right, so the apostles were like, they had a resume, spiritually speaking, like the apostles. They saw the Lord, they felt the Lord, they were commissioned by the Lord himself, they did miracles like the Lord. Paul's like, I'm the least of that group. You could say there were 12. Like, I'm the last of the 12. Six years later, when he wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus, he wrote to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now, he goes from saying, I'm the last of the 12. Six years later, I believe his faith matured. And now he's saying, I'm the last of all the saints. How many saints do you think there were at this time? Let's just say, Tens of thousands, believers. He's like, I'm the last in that line. I don't, I don't deserve, I'm in the back. And then here, 65 AD, fast forward four or five more years, so a span of 10 years, Paul would write, you know what? I thought I was the least of all the apostles. 
Then I came to realize I'm the least of all the saints. You know what? More accurately, I'm the chief of all sinners. You know what he's saying here? I'm the most prominent sinner. I am the most foremost sinner. He's saying, I'm not sinning more than anyone else. He's saying, I am more of a sinner than anyone else. And there's a huge difference between the two. It's a recognition. It's an awareness. It's like what happened to Job. Now, don't miss the point. In Job 1, God said of this man named Job, there is none like him on the earth. He is blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. No one like Job. So he's chief or first amongst all, according to God's estimation of Job. And then fast forward to chapter 42. After all Job's plights, he eventually is questioning where's God in the midst of all this. God reveals himself in the midst of all this as like a gentle rebuke, like I'm God and you have no prerogative questioning what I'm doing. And it's humbling. And this is what Job said. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What? I abhor myself? I reject myself. I despise myself in the presence of God. God was like, this guy's chief amongst the world as far as integrity goes. And in God's presence, Job himself goes, I don't deserve this. See, the closer we get to Christ, the more we realize how far we are from Christ. That's how this goes. Now, I'm not talking about intimacy. The closer you get to Christ, the more intimacy we'll have with Christ. I'm talking about humility. The closer you get to Christ, the more you realize how desperate you are for more of Christ. The humbler you become and remain knowing these two things be true. What God has saved you from in him and what God has saved you for in him. What God has saved you from is the work of hell on earth. Hallelujah. God has saved you from the work of hell on earth. The gates of Hades cannot prevail against the church and the work of God. While at the same time, he saved you for heaven's work on earth. It's one thing for him to spare us from hell's work on earth. It's an entirely different thing for him to spur us on to do heaven's work on earth. That's the here and now. Now, two more. God has saved you from hell. God has saved you for heaven beyond earth. Oh, that doesn't excite anyone, does it? Right? <laughs> saved for heaven? Saved from hell? This is what Paul's after. Timothy, look at me. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. Everything I just said, this is why God has given me mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Why did Paul recognize his history, memorialize it, and then highlight the grace of God and the mercy of God. He's like, hey, God is using my life as a pattern. If there's anyone out there who thinks they're too far gone, too down deep in the pit, Paul's like, 
Look at me. If God can save me, he can save thee. If grace can grab me, grace can grab thee. This is what Paul is saying. His life is a pattern, a blueprint, an example, a template that God is long-suffering, that God is patient, that God is a loving God, and he will save you from yourself, he'll save you from your sin, and he'll save you from Satan. This is enough at least for Paul, and I'll echo it, to break out in praise and what we call doxology. Verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul's not done. He explodes with praise and recognizes these divine traits. As king, his sovereign rule is over every person, every place, and everything. Is that not a truth for the times? As eternal king, his reign and rule is over every time, inside of time, outside of time, all the time, both now and forever. Stay with me, I'm moving rather quick. He goes from king, king, eternal, from the scope of rule to the scope of his being. He's immortal king. That means his existence is incorruptible. The person of Jesus is not able to be ravaged or ruined. No terroristic group can stop the work of this immortal king. As invisible king, he cannot be seen by the naked eye, nor defined or made by the human mind. And the blessing of knowing Jesus is that Jesus was the visible representation of the invisible God. To God alone is more appropriate. To this king eternal, this king immortal, this king invisible. Paul's like, there's no other God. It's him and him alone. And Christianity unashamedly exclaims the exclusivity of the gospel. There's only one God and there's only one son. There's only one spirit. There's only one gospel. The God of the Bible is not one among many. The God of the Bible is the only God. And he has ordained his son Jesus as the only way to receive God. In fact, everything we see in verse 17 is seen clearly in the son of God. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16. Jesus Christ is the immortal God, John chapter one, verse one, who saw no corruption, Psalm 16, 10. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15. And he's the only way for sinners to get to God, John 14, 6. Christ is supreme. Christ is sovereign. Christ is savior. Let me make it a little bit easier. Christ is supreme above all. Christ is sovereign over all. Christ is savior all in all. God's grace is abundant. God's grace is efficient. God's grace is sufficient. Dear church, this is your charge. He is a chief savior for every chief sinner. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it by God's grace. Let's do it. Would you stand with us? Father, in the name of Jesus, our eternal king, our immortal king, our invisible king, our king who is God alone. Wisdom comes from him. We give him glory and honor forever and ever. And to that, all of God's people say, amen.